this is uh, the Tabula Smaragdina um, drawing. It's from uh, uh, Daniel Mailey Ellison, the 1640s. But it's basically a statement of the Emerald Tablet principles without saying a word. All the, all the principles and symbols of alchemy are here. And it's all about only the Emerald Tablet and its principles. You can see right away the division between the above and the below, light and matter on the vertical axis of reality. And you see below a, a division into left and right, which is masculine and feminine consciousness that we've been talking about. It's so crucial below to bring together. And when they're brought together in the alchemist at the center here, you line up on this vertical axis of reality that gives you access to this reality above. And as you can see, soul, which is the masculine archetype, um, and over here with the symbols of fire and air, which are the elements of the masculine way in the world. Um, it's light. There's, a, there's buildings here. It's all about the everyday real world. Uh, but he's chained to the clouds of unknowing by just being half the picture more than The other side is equally chained to the clouds of unknowing because it's only half what you need to penetrate the clouds of unknowing. It's the women. This is actually Artemis, sometimes Diana, uh, the nature, the feminine aspect as, as nature. And, um, and there's a stag here who represents nature itself, nature himself. It's actually, in myth, it's Artemis who is the stag who saw, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Acteon, the Acteon, who is the stag who saw Artemis uh, bathing nude in the woods and fell in love with her. Um, it's that connection between women and nature that men don't have. And it's very sexual, it's very sensual, it's very feeling worldly oriented. Uh, man doesn't have that on the masculine side. And what we have in its place is really... Um, a demon. A demon comes because we're not one with nature. Demons come up in the masculine type of consciousness. In other words, using the masculine consciousness, the argumentative consciousness, there's always a demon ready, and it's usually our own unconscious. In other words, thinking function, feeling function, if you will. What's, what are the dangers of both paths? But it's not until both of them come together that you gain the vertical axis of reality. This is the horizontal axis. This is where we're crucified in reality, if you will, but between this vertical axis of spiritual forces and the horizontal axis of being down in the world and in earth and all the myriad things of the world. Um, the alchemist comes together. This is a mound of the philosophers. It has three levels of plants and bushes and trees showing uh, minerals and metallic compounds and finally the metals from Saturn all the way to gold in the center. So gold is the symbol of the entry or the perfection that allows us to enter into what's going on above here. Now, what is going on above here? It's a fantastic display of spiritual forces. We have um, 29 cherubs, which are uh, archetypal representations. Angels are archetypes. And this strange thing coming out of the center here is projecting this way on yet another axis of this drawing, and it's projecting into reality. This is called the stone. This is how to find the stone. By unpeeling these layers is a step-by-step -step way to the stone. There's one thing on this drawing that almost everybody misses, and it's the most important thing here. It's this. The 
sun behind the sun. Behind everything, there is a unitary mind that is undescribable. You cannot describe it. You cannot even be in its presence. This is the one mind. In Hermetic teachings, that's there. There's nothing you can do about it except approach it. And the Hermetic teachings show you how to approach it. This is also called the monad. This is the reality behind our reality. This is duality. Okay? And this is often called, this second sun here in Hermetic teachings is called mind the maker. It's, this is free thought of creation. This is the word coming into reality. This is the, the thought or the word, the vibration of the word that is making reality. And it's mind the maker. And it's totally separate from this. It's like a machine spit out. The Ouroboric machine, it's often called. That this presence, which we know nothing and can say nothing of, except that it has all the power and it is beyond duality, has made this to make our reality. Mm-hmm. She's right. She's, uh, this, this was con- considered very heretical because, uh, because of this sun. Because this, there's, they're saying there's a god, like Aten said, like Akhenaten said, the Aten, which is just the solar disk, the abstract solar disk, um, is behind reality. And all the other gods are here. All the other gods of duality and archetypes are here. So in Christian teachings, and I think in, in a lot of ways, um, that in Christian teachings, and then this drawing in particular showing a lamb and the tetragrammatron, the, the, the name of God, um, and the dove, are really alchemical symbols kind of disguised in Christian terms so that this drawing wouldn't cause its creators to be uh, thrown into prison or even burned at the stake. Because this drawing says that God is one and it's beyond any Christian God, any Islamic God, any individual God that we formulate it. Because we cannot formulate the one mind. And the one mind is where the power is at, if you will. Yeah, in, in the Kabbalistic tradition, it's the same. It's it. the, the, the four-letter word of God that cannot be spoken to Tetragrammaton. Uh, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, she was saying, um, how does that, that four-letter word of God relate to the uh, Kabbalistic teachings? And, of course, that's um, part of the Ket, the Keter crown, which I'll talk about a little bit more um, as we go on here. What I want to, the point I want to make about these three symbols, the tetragrammatron and the, the, the dove and the uh, lamb, is that they stand for the principles of alchemy too, the triad, the priatrema, the three principles of alchemy that are sulfur, mercury, and salt. The lamb, which stands for Christ, which stands for that consciousness that can exist in both heaven and earth is Mercury. Christ, born of, the, born of the Father, exists on our earth, but he also is connected to the above. That is exact description of Mercury and Toph and Hermes. They travel between the above and the below in heaven and in earth. They are equally present on earth as they are in heaven. And that lamb is a symbol of Mercury in alchemy. Mercury, 
Yeah. There's a lamp. A little hard to see, I know, but if you look. look on, in, in the above there, there are three symbols. One is a lamb, uh, and that is a symbol of mercury. And I want to make real quick that mercury, sulfur, and salt are essential to understanding mer uh, alchemy, and that looking at these symbols gives us an insight to what they really mean. Uh, while we're talking about mercury, mercury is something that du has duality about it, its own vertical duality, duality, as it's called. In other words, a spiritual duality. Mercury, when uh, existing in the world, exists on two levels always. And that means also good and bad in the world. So mercury itself, mercury the compound, is extremely poisonous. Um, one, one little drop uh, can kill you. I have up here samples of this. And I'll put them on the table in the back there. But mercury, if I were to drop this, we'd have to evacuate the boat. <laughs> <laughs> and and the hazmat team would come in because uh, mercury is considered very poisonous. I'm going to put them on the... Uh, ooh, I don't know where to put them, back here. And you can come by. Please be very careful lifting the mercury. It's very heavy. We have sulfur, mercury, and salt here, uh, examples of what they are, and you can feel them and get an idea for, the, for their signatures. But mercury, while it's a poisonous, uh, while it's a poisonous compound, in fact, just three weeks ago in Sacramento here in the doctor's office, the blood pressure cup in the, in the, in the room, the little glass vial that holds mercury, broke and dropped half a teaspoon of mercury on the floor. They evacuated the whole medical center, and, uh, and the hazmat team came in like outer space <laughs> uh, monkeys and, and, and uh, vacuumed up this stuff. It's, it's not that bad, I shouldn't say that to you, but... Mercury is very poisonous, but the alchemists believe that your attitude in working with mercury determined how it behaved around you. Okay? That's how connected to consciousness mercury was. If you are afraid of mercury, it's a deadly poison. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> and I, I can verify that. I really can personally verify that. Uh, when I was a kid, about 10 years old, I uh, lived in Chicago tenement buildings, and, and our gas meter broke. And it oozed out this mercury, this half a cup of mercury come out of the damn thing. And, and the repairman came and he and repaired the seals, but he left the mercury on the floor. And as, as a kid, I, I collected it and played with it, and it was like a wondrous, magical stuff. I can't tell you. that uh, it, it, it carried your reflection, that it was a metal, and that it had this weight, and it had something else. I mean, it was pure magic to me. I took drops of that mercury, played with them under my tongue, yeah, yeah. But under. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and the light switches you can get on. But, but uh, I was totally in love with mercury at the time, fascinated by it, and it didn't hurt me. I don't think it hurt me. <laughs> but I put it under my tongue. That's the most instant place for absorption in your whole body, uh, that membrane under your tongue. And, uh, and it didn't hurt me. And I have Indian alchemist friends who practice Rasayana who eat mercury pills all the time. Buddha took mercury. It, it's written in the text, his, his alchemist Kundi uh, fed him mercury. And Buddha, it is said, died when he took mercury in fear to die, to purposely die, that he took mercury knowing that it was the ideal thing to kill him 
to commit suicide that way. Mercury it has this duality about it, and your attitude. Mercury is thinking. Mercury is consciousness, and, it rea- and the metal reacts that way. I can't tell you how strange that sounds, and yet it's true. Um, and please don't go out and test yourself by drinking mercury. It's nothing <laughs> like that. I don't think I do that now. I don't think I even try because I don't have that innocence and trust of, of the child. In England, an alchemist Helmuts uh, used to demonstrate the affinity of mercury for gold. Mercury is the only compound that dissolves gold and uh, dissolves many other metals too. But um, he used to stick his big toe in a saucer of mercury. He'd have a gold coin on his tongue. In 10 minutes, the gold coin would be coated with the surface of mercury. (laughs) And he, unfortunately, only did that a few times um, before he died of mercury poisoning. But other alchemists like Newton, Isaac Newton, worked with mercury all the time. Um, he said when he was working with mercury, he never ate. He, he never, uh, his landlady would actually interrupt his mercury experiments to feed him because he felt that mercury was so perfect that he didn't have to consume food in working with it. And, um, so mercury is still a magical metal. I don't care what hazmat says. Uh, it's, but it is, and you have to be careful how you work around it, and you have to be careful what's going on in your mind and spirit when you're around it. Um, we know that mercury is a, is a healer, too. Paracelsus and others used it to heal syphilis. A mercuricone comes from mercury. It's used for uh, a lot of uh, antibiotic stuff. So it's a healer, too. Now, when you think of mercury, just think of these two opposites all the time. Mercury is called the rebus. Sometimes it means a twin-headed uh, thing that has one body and two heads or two aspects about it. Um, mercury... And here's the key to all of alchemy. I'm going to give it to you. <laughs> in, in reading the old text, you'll find sulfur, mercury, and salt are the most confusing things to understand because once it'll, sulfur will stand for soul, once it will stand for spirit. Uh, mercury is the same way, soul and spirit. Uh, it depends on what age in alchemy you're talking about. The modern interpretation has really relieved us of that uh, because in, in the modern sense, mercury is light. Mercury is the alchemist's intuition of what light was, having two different manifestations, both spiritual or energetic and both material at the same time, by Christ, to exist above and below. Um, Mercury is light. And light itself, as we know, has the same dual characteristics. Light, remember the big uh, controversy in, in physics was, what is light? Is it a particle or is it a wave? I remember alchemists, uh, physicists suggesting uh, that uh, light should be considered wavicles, <laughs> using using a semantic term really to solve this problem, where in the equations it was coming out that light could be matter sometimes and that light could be energy sometimes. And it really caused a lot of consternation in physics. And so now we just say, as crazy as it sounds, that light can be matter and light can be energy. Or, or, or both, can exist both as spiritual and a, and a material thing. Light is the secret of transformation. Without light, without mercury, there'd be no connection between the above and below for us to work through. You see what I mean? Mercury, because it contains both characteristics of the above and below, we can use that for transformation. And that's our only hope of transformation. If there wasn't mercury in the world, we'd be just animals all of our lives. We wouldn't have consciousness according to the alchemist. 
Mercury is a symbol of hope in the universe. Light is a symbol of hope in the universe. And while we're talking about it, um, light is not what we think. Um, and we'll get into this more in dissolution, but um, I know one experiment I saw uh, that, that, well, there's two things about light. One is that it's not visible. No light is visible. There was a light box experiment um, at the University of Chicago, and it took a lot of time to build. But there was a light source, a huge bright halogen light source in a, in a lucite box, and it projected this intense beam of millions of lumens into this box, long box, and then it was reflected with mirrors out the out the side. So you had this long box with that was totally dark except for one peephole, this light going into it, and the inside of the box was perfectly that's why it was so expensive. It was perfectly smooth inside the box. No places to catch light. Here you'd see this bright light going into this box. You'd look into the box and there's nothing but darkness. Because light is invisible. And it's only when light connects with matter or interferes with, has an, something to strike it, that we form, uh, that we, ha we have what we say is light. Um, in fact, uh, if modern physics is going to the other extreme now and looking for things, if it's a principle of physics that light is both matter, both particle and uh, energy, then there must be material light around somewhere, okay? This, this idea started uh, in some discussions at the University of Chicago, and it's really, there was a grant uh, to an Italian university, and I have the paper with me, actually, uh, I was reading it. The Italians have been able to make what they call liquid light, and it's a physical light that has weight, and that has luminescence, and that has physicists very excited because they, they see it as a, uh, a component of new computers, basically, that a light speed computer. Uh, but what they've discovered is that the only way to make it is by using certain crystals that they found at uh, Rene, France, where they used it in the, in the uh, cathedral windows. That same type of crystal, crystalline structure, with the precise combination of metallic ions uh, in that glass bend light to the point where light has weight and light it seems to be a liquid and behaves like a liquid can be poured that's that's really groundbreaking research that's going on right now so it's almost like there's the astral body or is that a perhaps that's a mechanism even for for spiritual progress because light is so connected to to the spirit sulfur on the other hand is energy a lot of times in alchemy, um, that's pretty easy to. If I lit a little bit of that yellow sulfur back there, it would immediately catch fire. That's what matches have on them. Um, and it would actually turn into a little plastic red ball because it would completely consume itself in flames. Biting, stinking fumes would come up from it. Uh, so that's what the, the signature of sulfur is, this, this flame and this ability to burn and its energy. It's like it's all energy that comes from sulfur. Sulfuric acid is the energy and was the energy of industry in both alchemical experiments for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, it was the, the agent of transformation on many levels. Salt, on the other hand, is matter in alchemy. So 
Um, salt is that which is already crystallized. In other words, it's like crystallized thoughts. It's like crystallized ideals. And the thing about salt is that it can be dissolved or can be changed. So the alchemists start working on salt or created matter and try to release its essences or its energy and its light and basically transform it back into a higher form of matter. That's what, that's what salt is to alchemy. It's actually much more than that. Salt is a very uh, freeing philosophy. The idea that who you are and what you are and what the world is and what the country is and what, uh, what everything is, is just salt. And it can change. And it can be changed. And, and all the problems you have in relationships, they're just salt that built up. And all the diseases you have in your body, it's just salt that built up from some idea somewhere. And it can all be dissolved. And all the problems we have are just salt. And a lot of, and our ego is just salt. And identity can be dissolved and changed and improved. So salt offers a lot of hope too to the alchemist. So if you, and all the confusing references to sulfur, mercury, and salt in the alchemical text, if you just keep in mind that salt's matter, mercury's light, and sulfur is energy on all three levels. Salt's your body, salt and, and mercury's your mind, and sulfur's your spirit, and that energy that comes down for transformation. And it makes it really simple to understand alchemy and a lot of the alchemical. And this is true all across the ages, back to Egyptian alchemy, um, in Eastern alchemy, in Western alchemy. In fact, if we, if we look at the equation E equals mc squared, the equation of the universe. It's like sulfur equals salt times mercury. Uh, the alchemists knew that somehow. And the relationships between these reveal that, that they intuited that this uh, equation of the, of the universe, I think, in their writings, that they saw energy and matter and light in, in pretty much the same way as, as that grand alchemist of physics, uh, Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton, Albert Einstein. Um, in fact, Einstein used imagination, which is a technique of fermentation we'll learn, uh, to, to discover that. He, he imagined himself riding on a light beam through the universe. And he connected with what the alchemists called the true imagination. And he saw these relationships in the universe. Then he came back and worked out the math. And had a lot of problems doing it. E equals mc squared is an alchemical equation. And if that little C squared stood for consciousness, there'd be no difference between physics and alchemy. Uh, none in the least. So, in that sense, the lamp is mercury. These three principles are always there. The father is sulfur. Sulfur being that ancient energy presence that was there before the beginning of time. And the dove is the Holy Spirit, which is salt. The Holy Spirit in the sense that it's that spark in matter that exists in all its purity to make that to make that matter exist, to make your body exist, your very life force. This is the, the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost that not much can be said about. So those principles are there on all those levels, and that's kind of what they're doing there to, to uh, conceal that idea from, from Christian uh, persecutors at the time. Uh, Daniel Mylus, M-Y-L-I-U-S. And it's about 1640. There's a lot of prints on it. Uh, 
I apologize that we're so linear and long here uh, for the people in the back. Well, we've got prints in the back there you can study, and there's uh, there's some in the uh, bookstore. The symbol, uh, the symbols we're talking about here now, just so you get to know them. Um, fire is an upward pointing triangle, meaning it re tries to return to the above. It's 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 leaping up, energy going back. Um, water is a downward pointing triangle, kind of like coming down from above. It, the idea is grace, uh, divine grace is water. It's that refreshing, energetic presence. Uh, presence. Fire is masculine, and water is uh, feminine. Or we're talking yang and yin in that tradition. Um, and actually, the other two elements are kind of derived from these. Um, the element of air is considered to be fire, or derived from fire, Kabbalistically. Uh, and yet it has this horizontal component to it, and this is the symbol to it. In other words, air is between fire and earth, fire and water. And the symbol for earth is this the horizontal component? In fact, there's a lot of similarities between water being a pre-stage of something becoming real and material, and Earth, that final solid stage. Uh, the symbol for sulfur is fire, with a, a cross at the bottom, meaning it's in reality, or it's here. Sometimes there's a curly Q, meaning even more grounded. So it's in the real world. Sulfur is fire in the real world. Sulfur um, is that agent of change in the real world. Sulfur is energy. And the, the symbol for Mercury is the symbol for Venus. Mercury is considered lunar and actually a little closer to the feminine because of its intuitive consciousness accentuation. But also at the other side, it has material consciousness too. So there's that duality again. But the lunar symbol is there. It's almost like a combination of the sun and the moon and the, and, the, and the material reality, the cross, where we're crucified in reality. In other words, a coming together of the horizontal and vertical axis of reality, a coming together of the lunar and solar forces, a coming together so that there's freedom on all this vertical axis of reality and all these realms that we saw on the other drawing. Mercury. This is Mercury here, and Hathor, yeah, and Aries is actually um, like that too. Uh, we have Taurus, I'm sorry, <laughs> yeah, Taurus. And the symbol from uh, salt, this varies a little bit. Normally it's something like this. In other words, it's the perfected essence, again, on the horizontal plane, so it's material reality. This, the symbol, the circle is always some type of perfection coming from above, the idea of that perfection. In fact, the symbol of the first matter sometimes is shown as a salt like this, and the, and the symbol for the stone is often shown as a, as a uh, symbol like this. So there's very little difference between the first matter and the stone. It's just a matter of rectifying it, or turning it and making it in the right direction and lining it upright, or purifying it. Um, so those are the symbols. These are great symbols for meditation. They're, they're wonderful symbols to to just jot down, and you can get in the habit whenever you're writing something, uh, and the fire comes up on all its level, like inspiration, you can use that symbol. Fire, the house is burning down, you can use that symbol. Um, and, and fire of thoughts and concentrated thoughts, you can use that symbol. And that's how the alchemists would use it. 
in their writings. Mental, spiritual, and physical characteristics, they'd all use the same symbols. When we talk about getting confusing. Uh, that was certainly how they went about it. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit more about this central stone area here and how to work through this. These are the seven steps of transformation that we're going to be going through and talking about here. And this is the stone in the center. These other operations are really um, uh, how to get to the quintessence by using the birds of alchemy, uh, different operations here. There's a, just tremendous symbolism here. I could spend a whole day talking about that one drawing, but I see we're getting a little short of time, so I'm going to have to um, move on. Okay, here's another really hard <laughs> esoteric diagram for you. But it um, it's about these operations of change that we're talking about. Okay? It's... And there's another drawing in the back. There's many in the books, and there's some in the bookstore. But like the previous drawing, it's a meditation diagram. And it's like a mandala. It's like a Western mandala, because in the, just like in the previous drawing, at the stone is where you fix your attention. And you don't try to intellectually work with these symbols. You try to absorb them all at once in order to, to reach the stone. That's what is happening here. You fix your attention at the center of the drawing, and... Sometimes, and in, in, uh, this drawing in particular has evolved so many, it, it took 400 years to get to this point. When it started out, this went back to 1300, this drawing. This particular rendition is from uh, Basil Valentine, about 1600, 1640, something like that. But this drawing has really changed over the centuries, but it stayed pretty much the same, showing these, uh, these steps of transformation. Can you hear me okay in the back? So these steps are the same throughout here. There's sometimes, in an alchemist's laboratory, there's a mirror here, so that he meditates on his own face at this section. This is the alchemist's face. This downward-pointing triangle, which is the symbol for water, is divine grace coming down. And that's what he seeks. He seeks the own, the own divine presence within himself. So there's two alchemists at work here. The alchemist and God, or the divine alchemist. And within this triangle is the face of God and the face of the alchemist. The medieval church really liked this. <laughs> this really turned them on. In fact, just possessing this drawing in Holland for a long time was uh, enough to get you sent to, to uh, jail, prison for many, many years. Um, this was a very secret drawing, a very private drawing. And what it says is that man can become God. It doesn't mean He's going to. It doesn't mean that our, even our species is going to, but some sentient species that has this conscious connection and, and ability to think and feel can do it. So it's not it's not a hubric thing. It's not a pride thing. It's a it's a work. It's a working diagram, and it's not saying I am God, because there's points in in this operation where it's saying that or thinking that I am God destroys everything, because that's a form of ego. It's called monk's pride by the alchemist. In other words, you're on this spiritual path, and you're a lot better than everybody else around you, because you're, you're with the spirit. And uh, that type of pride destroys the whole operation. And the alchemists are constantly warning, warning about that as they talk about working through this diagram. We have 
The seven stages of transformation, what we're going to be working with, this is calcination, the stage one, we're working with fire. The symbol here is Saturn, or lead, the metal lead. So we're working on the planetary ladder too, and we're working with lead, the, the metal. What do all these have in common? Why are these symbols of this stage where the cure for lead and the cure for Saturn is fire? In other words, to move to the next operation. Saturn is the slowest planet. It's, it's the farthest planet. It's the farthest planet from the sun. It's the borderline between our galaxy and the rest of the universe. So it's like that place of transformation. It's, it's Father Time. It's the crippled Father Time image. But it's also the image of the newborn child. So in Saturn, which, uh, who's, uh, whose sign is Capricorn, in Saturn, in Saturnic energies, there's a lot of this Mercury idea, too. Saturn, most people think of Saturnic energies as devilish or evil or dark, when in fact, there's promise there for change in that Saturnic feeling. If Saturn, the planet, had been able to pull enough matter to it, and in other words, to been able to manifest, it would have become a star. That's how close it came to becoming a star itself and to perfecting this whole operation in our galaxy. And that's a, a synchronism, if you will, of why we're working through the planet. If Saturn had succeeded, the life forms here would have been entirely different. We would have had two suns, and we would have been balanced in the Earth. Saturn, astronomically, was unable to attract enough matter. That's why the rings are there. It's trying to pull in enough matter. There wasn't enough matter there and it almost became a star. Frustrated Saturn is now a stubborn planet, and it's the idea of stubbornness and, and resistance to change. It's a bitter old man in a lot of ways, and it's metal lead. It's just like that. It's, it's heavy, dark gray. Um, lead is a metal that, if you're around, will affect me a lot more than mercury, or, or a lot of people it will affect... It will bring you down into darkness. Not necessarily that that's a bad thing. Lead has its characteristics that are necessary for transformation. In fact, lead has the same characteristics, these, these kind of dual characteristics of good and bad that Saturn has. Lead, if you powder lead to refine powder, which is really hard because it clumps together so easily, and you have to do it in vacuum sometimes to do it, but if you powder lead, it'll immediately burst into flames with no source of ignition by it. Lead carries the fire of its own transformation in it, just like, just like Saturn does. And, um, and, it's, and it consumes itself in flames. That archetypal signature is what propels us through this whole uh, transformation of the planetary ladder. And also the idea that lead, because it carries the fire of its own transformation, just like our souls do. Our souls are lead, too. Our souls are resistant to change. Spirit is what's pulling the sun. Spirit is what's pulling our, our soul along, but it resists it. And, and uh, in fact, I, I have a good drawing here that illustrates that. And it's an idea that most people intuitively know, I think, that, uh, that soul, our souls, are eternal and really kind of pleased themselves, or resistant to change. This is an alchemical drawing from 
Cello, an artist uh, from the Renaissance. And what it's showing is spirit on a white horse, <laughs> the, the masculine presence coming to save soul. And this is the whole alchemical process to, to save soul from its being caught in this cycle of rebirth, to bring soul into the light. Soul is in darkness, it's in matter. Uh, and this is a symbol of the first matter, this dragon. Dragons are always symbol of the first matter, the chaotic energy that you can't tame or control. In fact, these circles here, alternating between white and red, are very significant in alchemy. These are the final stages of transformation, uh, the colors of the final stages. Red being the ultimate color in alchemy, in the work, and white being the color of purification just before that. Um, there's a lot of alchemical symbols here, uh, insinuating that this is an alchemical process. Soul, by this feminine presence here, has first matter on a leash. And she's smiling. She's, she's not afraid of this dragon of first matter or nature. She's content. Content living in the cave in the darkness with the, with the dragon. And that's how our soul is. Content. In our bodies. Connected to our bodies. Our soul is very experiential. In other words, soul is about living for the moment and experiencing things, feelings. Spirit is all in the future, all wanting to thinking about perfection. Soul doesn't give a damn about being perfect, being perfect, really. Soul is about being in the moment. Soul may be thinking that I've gone through so many reincarnations, is this going to happen? Soul knows it's eternal. Why should I change? And you change because you want to get out of that cycle of rebirth. That's, that's the alchemical principle of spirit coming down from above and saving soul. Well, it's a very heroic principle, but it's also a principle that causes tension between soul and spirit. So soul and spirit, while most people think of it as the same word, really. Most people think soul and spirit are about the same thing. Alchemists, they're two totally, absolutely different things. Um, Spirit being associated with uh, sulfur, and often associated with sulfur, and uh, soul being associated with mercury and the possibilities of change there. Um, this whole uh, diagram is, or uh, drawing, is well known for its perspective because it's a, it's, a, it's a lateral perspective here. Lining up with his lance is this vortex of energy coming from above. In other words, the divine spirit, this is part of a universal process, the divine light or the divine spirit coming down into matter, into this cave. So this is the same thing as we've seen in the other diagrams of light above perfecting matter, coming down into matter, and that's what the lance of spirit is. The key, and really one of the subtle keys of this chemical print, is the attitude of spirit. And it's a key to how spirit can actually get in touch with um, soul and actually transform it. It's a key, like, okay, a cat is a really good symbol of, of soul. <laughs> and a dog is a symbol of spirit. In fact, I love cats so much that I'm allergic to them. I'm only allergic to one thing in the world, and that's cats. And I go, I spent like $3,000 on 
allergy treatments just to live with a cat. And But if you approach a cat too aggressively, it runs or it hides. You have to approach a cat with a true feeling of you're not going to harm it. You know how you relate with cats? A dog could give a damn, you know. A dog's going to be there and loyal no matter what you do to it. Uh, it's just totally a spirited animal. Whereas cats are soulful, and they have a, they have a right to be so soulful. I mean, they've been, uh, for their soulfulness, they've been persecuted. Even in Egyptian times, uh, the, the soul of cats uh, was sacrificed to the god Bastet, which is a uh, thinking that that would increase people's soul by sacrificing cats. In the Middle Ages, along with women, um, the church was against anything feminine. Any, any of this idea of somebody being close to nature, working with nature, so it wasn't only alchemists they were against, it was uh, anyone who thought they could connect with God through nature, and that was women and their feminine ways and their passive ways and their intuitive thinking and their feeling-centered existence. And, um, and it was cats, too. Cats were, cats were thrown on, uh, when they burnt witches, they'd throw cats in wicker baskets on the, on the fires. Millions and millions of cats were destroyed in the Inquisition. Uh, that's part of the Easter basket tradition, actually. And uh, cats were walled up into houses and new buildings uh, and punished for their soulfulness, just like women were. The, the medieval church was ex- is extremely patriarchal and, uh, and wanting to preserve masculinity. Jung looked at the church and all the karma that it's created in the world as being very significant on what the future of the planet was. And, uh, for instance, at the Assumption of Mary in the 50s, he was elated because he felt that this was an indication that the church was becoming more feminine. And he really looked for that, uh, about his feelings of the future of our species, looking at the church because of all the karma the church built up and, and attacking the feminine force. We came close under this pope, and politics in the Vatican didn't make it possible. That's a significant thing alchemically to what's going to happen in our future, I think, and to the type of change that's coming. Uh, and actually, Jung wrote about this um, quite a bit. So it's the attitude here that we want to look at. What's the proper attitude of approaching um, soul? And it's one of quiet. And I really have to get a close-up of this figure to see that. Look at the expression on his face. That's not a charging, conquering hero. It's almost meditative. It's almost quiet. It's almost loving. That's how you approach soul. That's how you work with soul. Childlike and innocent. There's nothing. The armor, the whole... It could be, except that this is uh, showing a masculine, uh, uh, feminine dichotomy between spirit, which spirit at a distance... This is the typical figure of spirit or masculine way of approaching soul. It's armored. Uh, it's it's charging. It's on a white horse. Uh, all that idea of killing the dragon, killing the first matter and chaos, and saving soul from that. And the attitude to approach that is not one of conquest. You can't catch a cat <laughs> by chasing it. Uh, a cat will do what it wants based on how you are energetically present. So it's a, in other words, 
through meditation in, in a lot of ways is a way to conquer soul and through purification in meditation. Good question. That's a good question. What he's asking is, um, here is a, on this diagram, we have these three um, behind the body of the alchemist here. We have these three, three prima again, the um, salt or corpus, shown by a cube, matter, spirit, spiritus, and anima, which is soul, which will be mercury. So this is spirit and soul, signified here. Why is the sun with a soul, and why is the salamander attractive? Is that what you're saying? Why is it, why is it on this side? Why are these symbols mixed? And this has a lot to do. Normally the sun should be over here, right? This is spirit or sulfur. This has a lot to do with what's called the changing into opposites here, or the yin and yang, like the yin-yang diagram. Each has a seed of the other. It's exactly what they're saying here. That, and that's a lot of confusion in alchemy is when they talk about sulfur, sometimes it has um, mercury characteristics, and mercury has sulfur characteristics. And um, sometimes spirit is very energetic, and sometimes it's very uh, meditative or in its approach. That's part of it. And also the fact is, that's uh, what's attracted to it. In other words, soul is naturally attracted to spirit on, on some level. In other words, the feminine is naturally attracted to the masculine. Whatever in your relationships, you know that what is a, what, how you're attracted to your partner in a lot of ways balances your own characteristics. If you have a predominance of spirit, you're most likely going to be attracted to someone of soul. We're talking masculine and feminine, but I'm not talking about bodies or gender necessarily. Um, it's, it's our true essence, our true signatures, and that's what relates in relationships. And relationships can be very alchemical, very much growing, or relationships can be very much damning to spiritual growth, too. And it's all about balancing these energies. So the same alchemical principles and these same operations apply to relationships as much as they do personal work, especially if you can identify the essences of soul and spirit involved. Any other questions? She's, um, she's asking basically why soul is attracted to the darkness. Well, she's standing there and passing that. Mm-hmm. I see. We're not going to bring you to the light, but then what you're doing, maybe this is where we are right now. <laughs> <laughs> she's saying... Uh, Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whether this, whether that's that lance of, of spirit coming down into soul, soul is content uh, in matter, happy, connected to nature, connected to the first matter energies. In other words, perfect unto itself almost. And she's saying, why not leave us alone? <laughs> she's saying, why interfere uh, with that state, which is Eden? which is really uh, the, the garden. And that's the fall, yeah. That's, that lance coming down from above is the fall. And it's not part... Uh, it could be aliens coming and playing with our DNA. It could be something like that. But it's part of the universe, too. It's part of the natural cycle, the pattern of change in the universe. Nope, but... She, she's saying there should be more dragons there uh, to portray intervention, these well, different interventions. If they were allowed to go 
that's true. That's basically what what you're saying is that women are still grieving for that, or, or the feminine. The, yeah, mankind is is, and that really is the Garden of Eden. We are all still longing for the Garden of Eden and 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 returning to that innocent state of of, uh, of childhood, really. But the child grows. It's just part of uh, nature and the pattern of the universe that that change happens. And as much as you are defending soul, uh, I'm sure there's people in this room that could that could defend spirit uh, equally. And and it's that's beautiful that you're coming from there. Yeah, she, it's very masculine. Yeah, it's that's why isn't there another choice? In other words, what you're saying. Why does it have to be? Why does it have to be so violent? Why does masculine spirit come with the lance? Out right. And and this is not that lance that you're taking affront to, which is the male phallic way of being in the world is not an assault to you. If it's if it's if it's done to soul so that you destroy it, it's evil. It's the patriarchal church saying you shall be this way or you're going to get burnt at the stake. That's that's the lance coming down. This drawing and the reason I showed it was that this is an exception. It's the proper way for spirit to approach it. With the love on that person's face, with the with the innocence on that person's face. So it's it's not about forcing soul to change. It's about making soul come along, want to come along. Make a choice, like you said. Soul is matter, though. Soul is matter, and 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 the spirit is energy, and energy and matter are the same thing in physics. Soul and spirit are really end up to be the same thing in that sun behind the sun. So it's all this process of becoming one again. And yet, like, like the octave of creation, each vibration, each time you change soul, you're increasing its vibration. And that's the evolution, that's the alchemical transformation that's taking place in the universe. Right, 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 right. Yeah, it could be interpreted that way. It could be, yeah. In Jungian thought, you could say, I mean, it's an expression of attention to the opposite. The whole system is dynamic. Right. We live constantly on kind of an edge. We're always on that knife edge. Can you all hear that? Yeah, yeah. You hear okay? Dynamic turmoil is like two seconds. That's that part of the Any other comments? 
Healing the attachment to matter. And also, look at soul as kind of a salt, that, that salva et coagula, that process in the universe, that process in us, it's, it's naturally present. The dynamics here are soul and spirit, energy and matter. And it's, it's a wonderful process in a lot of ways. Uh, it's living and it's always alive. The first matter is between these two. It's the chaotic thing that's between them. Hadith. Sufi. Yeah, very good. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. saying that the, the, the answer really is is the sun behind the sun, that this is a process that we can't question, that we're caught up in it, and that we, we're understanding, that we are trying to understand it. And that's the alchemical approach, that nature comes first. Nature is the teacher. We cannot question it. We can, we can hypothesize that maybe it was an alien event, intervention. We can hypothesize that the devil and, and God are working together like that. But this sun behind the sun that knows this truth is beyond our comprehension. We can only work with mind the maker and the alchemical principles there to, to bring, bring this through. And we feel that in our own selves. We feel that in our own uh, alchemy going on within ourselves, that this is something that's immediate. And whether we understand it or whether we like it or not, uh, it's something we have to face and it's a reality we have to face. This, Right. Right. It is. We can't personalize it. And whenever the human species has tried to personalize it, it's all hubris. It's all social ego coming out. And it's all about wars then. And about my way's right and your way's right. And Very good. Yeah, that's great. Any other mm-hmm. comments? Um, yeah. The way I see that, besides, I don't see it as critical at all because it's the outer one is uh, God, the creator, his mind, his essence. Exactly. His his voice. Focusing it. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah, that's very good.
boy, that peppermint really helped you people. <laughs> this is everyone speaking here with the tongue of talk, believe me. There's an old Egyptian saying, um, may talk speak to you daily. And it's just this type of inspiration that that, that saying is talking about, that, that, uh, that it's inspired thought, not necessarily linear thought, that arrives at the truth. All right, I'm, what we're going to do uh, after lunch, we have to work on the spagyric tincture between 143 and 508, because that's when the planetary uh, alignment is correct for chamomile, which we're, everyone here is going to be making a tincture of chamomile to try and uh, capture some of the energies here in this crucible today. And from that, you can later make an elixir. And I'll talk about that more later. But So we have to reserve uh, something around 2 o'clock for an hour for each of us to get the tincture and work with it. So what I'm going to do is, after lunch, I'm going to go right into some meditations for uh, for these processes so you can get more. This, this, this group is much more advanced than I thought. And I'm... I'm sorry for wasting your time uh, a little bit there, but you're doing wonderful. And I, and I think we can do some meditations where you really connect with these energies and maybe understand them better. So have a good lunch. I'll be in the bookstore if anyone wants me.